Cyclophosphamide now is the number one drug used uh, in bone marrow transplant to both get the graft in and to prevent the major complication of the transplant uh, graft-versus-host disease, or GVHD. And this was all developed in the 60s by George and uh, his boss at um, Al Owens, uh, working in animal models. That was Dr. Richard J. Jones speaking about the legacy of Dr. George Santos, who was the founder of Johns Hopkins University's bone marrow transplant program. Jones is a professor of oncology and medicine, director of the bone marrow transplantation program, and co-director of the hematologic malignancies program at the Sydney Kimmel Comprehensive Cancer Center at Johns Hopkins. I'm Alexandria Carolyn, associate editor with the Cancer History Project. Santos pioneered many of the innovations used in bone marrow transplantation that are relevant today, but he didn't get nearly as much credit as others working in the field. When Don Thomas and Joseph E. Murray won the 1990 Nobel Prize in Medicine for their discoveries in bone marrow transplantation, or BMT, some thought that Santos deserved to share the credit. Santos was responsible for a lot of firsts in the field, Jones said. Most significantly, he and Al Owens, one of the founders of the field of medical oncology, conducted animal studies using cyclophosphamide. Now, Jones said cyclophosphamide has been widely accepted by the medical community as the best way to prevent graft-versus-host disease. In this obituary, um, you know, I read that Dr. Santos first developed an interest in bone marrow transplantation while serving in the Naval Reserves in San Francisco um, in the late 1950s. Um, so I'm curious about what this looked actually, like. Uh -huh. Actually, the early 1950s. Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, or the mid-1950s, I guess. I think it was... 54. Mm -hmm. um, so when you, so around the time of the um, Korean War, um, you, and if you were drafted as a physician, you could apply for working in uh, research labs instead of being shipped off, shipped off to Korea. And he did that and got assigned to the Naval Research Lab in San Francisco. These, these um, positions were actually called yellow berets, uh, which is an interesting uh, sort of categorization. And as I think you and Fred discussed that um, a lot of the research uh, related to bone marrow transplantation was funded by um, the government um, looking for potential treatments for radiation sickness. Um, and that's, I think, how Dr. Thomas got much of his original funding. Uh, George was assigned uh, to a laboratory doing exactly the same thing, uh, looking at bone marrow transplant as a potential cure or treatment of radiation sickness. Now, it's never going to work that way, uh, uh, despite several uh, tries at it for lots of different reasons. But what grew out of that was the fact that um, you could cure uh, leukemia in mice with this approach, and it went on from there. So he was, um, he was a um, resident here at Johns Hopkins, and he was recruited back by Al Owens, who was the first director of the um, Cancer Center uh, at Hopkins. It wasn't an official cancer center then, uh, mm -hmm. to actually start a bone marrow transplant 
program um, in the late 50s, early 60s, because it was just at that point becoming a uh, interesting topic. Um, so uh, George and Al uh, did the first research in cancer at Johns Hopkins um, in the 60s, uh, basically related to bone marrow transplant in different um, areas. In terms of scope of bone marrow transplant programs at other um, hospitals within the U.S., were there many of them? Were they sort of no. just starting out? So when Hopkins was doing it, there were probably um, three places uh, doing transplants. Seattle, um, where Donnell Thomas moved from uh, Cooperstown, New York. Um, and Sloan Kettering with Bob Good uh, and, and Hopkins. There was some research going on uh, in Europe as well related to uh, bone marrow transplant, but those are probably the three places uh, where it was going on. Why then? Because of the government funding for looking for uh, mm -hmm. ways to treat radiation sickness. Um, and um, the data that came out of animal models that you could actually cure leukemia uh, and lymphomas with a bone marrow transplant. Mm. So, you know, what George's original uh, work was, was in mice and rats trying to develop the platform uh, that would work for transplant. Wow. What did these early animal studies look like? Yeah, so animal models are all artificial uh, and they just give you a look into biology um, uh, to help you translate the findings into the human. Donnell Thomas and most people were working with total body radiation uh, as the part of the transplant that would help cure the leukemia. Um, and it worked pretty well in animal models, but when it was translated into humans, the way that radiation was being given at the time was too toxic. It was given as one dose. Um, the mice could tolerate the, this one dose often, but humans couldn't. Uh, when George got to Hopkins, uh, there was no radiation source that he could use to treat his animals with total body radiation. So he had to innovate and find another way of uh, treating animals prior to the bone marrow transplant. And he basically took every anti-cancer agent that was available at the time. Um, and there were eight to 12, depending uh, at the time. And he found that a drug called cyclophosphamide or cytoxan was the one that looked the most like total body radiation. It had it was very it had a very strong anti-cancer activity, um, and it suppressed the animal's immune system to allow the new transplant to take. So George's original studies were all using cyclophosphamide in rats and mice, um, whereas. Dr. Thomas and others were using radiation. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I think um, 
Jerry Yates uh, probably contacted you because of these innovations that George did probably today have a lot more relevance to bone marrow transplant than uh, some of the things that were being done at other places. Um, and cyclophosphamide now is the number one drug used uh, in bone marrow transplant um, to both get the graft in and to prevent the major complication of the transplant uh, graft-versus-host disease or GVHD. And this was all developed in the 60s by George and uh, his boss at um, Al Owens uh, working in animal models. Um, just like Don Thomas was working mostly in dogs uh, mm -hmm. to develop their platform for transplant, George was working in mice and rats and was translating what he found in those animal models to the humans. Interesting. Um, now, when, when was it that he started um, conducting uh, studies in humans in regard to yeah. bone marrow transplantation? So he did his first allogeneic transplant in March of 1968. Uh, and actually in uh, Don Thomas's um, lecture uh, for uh, his Nobel Prize, he said that the first matched sibling allogeneic transplant was done by Bob Good in November of 1968. George had actually done two matched sibling allogeneic transplants uh, in 1968, but one in March and one in October. So he did them before Donnell Thomas. Mm -hmm. And where everybody else was using TBI, total body radiation, he was using high-dose cytoxin as the conditioning regimen before the transplant. Mm -hmm. And what, um, tell me, how did this first transplant, these first couple transplants that he did, um, how did they go? Yeah, so um, all the original transplants done um, throughout the world uh, had two major problems. One is they were treating end-stage cancer. So even if the transplant itself was successful in getting the graft in, the patients ultimately relapsed. The other major problem was this thing called graft-versus-host disease. Um, because when you put a new immune system into somebody, unless it's an identical twin, uh, which has the exact same uh, biology as uh, the donor and recipient have the exact same biology, um, there there are uh, reactions that occur where the new immune system will attack uh, not only the cancer, which you want it to do, but the patient's normal cells. So this, these were the things that they had to work out uh, to get transplants to take and to work. Um, so the first place relapse um, after Donnell Thomas figured out how to give total body radiation. And to do that, you had to do something called fraction fractionation, meaning you don't give it all as one dose, you give it as um, multiple doses over several days. Um, and then he added cyclophosphamide to that, um, which he actually learned from George. Uh, and um, that helped with the, controlling the disease. And for the first time we were seeing cures with bone marrow transplant. George uh, eventually added a drug called busulfan, which um, is perhaps the second most commonly used drug in bone marrow transplant. Uh, and so he developed the regimen called busi. Uh, and when I started, the two major 
conditioning regimens for transplant were CyTBI developed in Seattle, but using Georgia's cyclophosphamide and Bucide developed in Baltimore. Wonderful. Um, you know, you mentioned how Don Thomas learned to use Cytoxan um, because of George. Now I'm, I'm curious, you know, how did, how did they all collaborate all the, at the time, all the bone marrow transplant research? Yeah, I mean, it was a very small field, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so um, there would be meetings, uh, national meetings where they would get to know each other. And although bone marrow transplant has become a huge international um, area now, uh, back then there were only a handful of people. Uh, so they met at meetings, they read each other's papers. I think where uh, Don Thomas first heard about this, he invited George out to give a talk in Seattle um, in probably the late 60s or early 1970s. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, in talking with um, Dr. Applebaum, he was talking about um, the blood club, um, which I think later became ASH, if I'm not mistaken. Um, right. Was um, was George also a part of this? Did yeah. he present his research at these meetings? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was a small cadre of people, um, and George was a prominent member of it. So I'm curious about, you know, if you know of any talks that George gave at any meetings and how this was received at first? Because I would imagine that there maybe was some pushback to the work that he was doing. Here at Hopkins, it was not accepted. All cancer research, particularly George's research in bone marrow transplant, was considered sort of pseudoscience. Hmm. And he and, da and um, Al Owens were actually farmed out to a city hospital called Baltimore City Hospital that's about five miles uh, east of the Hopkins main medical campus. Wow. Uh, and that's where they did all their original research and clinical research, laboratory research and clinical research. Well, I'm really curious about the Hopkins community not necessarily accepting this and seeing it as pseudoscience. Um, you know, I, I that term being farmed out to the other hospital is just so fascinating. So who who were the major players at the time? Why were they so skeptical? Um, well, the major players were the department chairs. Um, and, um, you know, using radiation and um, animal models and transplanting cells uh, between human beings um, was not thought to be hard science. Um, in fact, I think it's fair to say that all cancer research at the time was not thought to be hard science. It was looked at as throwing poisonous drugs at animals and people and seeing how it works. Um, an interesting part of the story is that George and Al put in a um, NCI grant um, when Nixon started his war on cancer. One of the major parts of it was to give out uh, NCI designation to centers around the country uh, to um, help them uh, move the treatment of cancer forward. Uh, and Hopkins got one of these first designated cancer center grants in 74 or 75. Mm -hmm. And in that grant, um, they were told by the NIH that they had to move their cancer operation back to the main campus so that uh, 
they were going to be working more within the uh, major aspects of uh, the Johns Hopkins Medical School. Wow. And that was not viewed great by the rest of the medical school at the time. And it became uh, a little bit of a um, problematic area uh, throughout the cancer center. And in fact, oncology became a department at Hopkins. In most places, it's a division under a um, department of medicine, uh, largely because um, uh, they had to hire people um, and other departments wouldn't let them hire into their departments. So wow. the dean just made it a uh, full department in Hopkins. Wow. That's what an interesting history. Um, so, I mean, I imagine that must have felt good to, you know, return back to the regular campus or what have you yeah. to continue with the research. Yeah. <clears throat> and they were able to build a cancer center building that opened up in 1976, I believe, here on the main right. campus, um, where, which is where I started in, uh, in 1984 when I got here. Got it. That's great. Um, I'd love to talk about well, you, you mentioned um, the issue of graft versus host disease. Um, and just to maybe dig in a little bit more as to how George sort of addressed this um, and in his patients. Yeah, so um, there are two aspects of transplant as I was telling you. One is conditioning therapy before the transplant that would allow the transplant to take. And then there was treatment after the transplant to try to um, lessen the severity of graft-versus-host disease. I won't say prevent it because it turns out that graft-versus-host disease is a double-edged sword. It's the major thing that cures cancer as part of an allogeneic transplant, but it's the uh, uh, also the major toxicity of the transplant because of uh, the harm that this can do to normal tissues in addition to the leukemia. George and Al actually found out that cyclophosphamide in their hands was the best drug for both getting the transplant in and preventing graft-versus-host disease. So when I started here, um, cyclophosphamide was the major drug we were using for the transplant and after the transplant to prevent graft-versus-host disease. Um, if you now go back go forward about 55 years or so, uh, cyclophosphamide has now been um, basically accepted by the community as the best way of preventing graft-versus-host disease. Um, there was just a New England Journal article that came out last week, actually, that compared uh, post-transplant cyclophosphamide, or PT-CY is what we currently call it, PT-CY, to the prior standard, which was cyclosporin and, or tacrolimus and methotrexate, and PTSI had um, better results. Uh, but this work started back in the 1960s with George and Al um, and continued here at Hopkins over the last uh, half a century by many people. Um, George and Al had it all figured out in mice, it turns out. Uh, but uh, they were scared of cyclophosphamide. It was a chemotherapy agent that was being used at high doses before the transplant. The only thing that really worked in the mice was high doses after the transplant, but they couldn't understand how you could successfully give a drug 
uh, at high doses after a transplant. And so when they took it into the humans, they took it in in low doses and that didn't work uh, for preventing graft versus host disease. And then cyclosporin came on the horizon and that became the major drug for preventing graft versus host disease. But we continue to work with cyclophosphamide, many of us here at Hopkins in the lab, and we figured out how it worked, why it worked, and that you could in fact give it at high doses after the transplant. And um, I think it's fair to say, and I'm obviously a little bit biased, but uh, the development of post-transplant cyclophosphamide is probably one of the major advances in bone marrow transplant ever. And certainly um, uh, the clinical use of it in this millennium, it allows us now to do mismatched transplants, which was one of the major problems of the transplant uh, prior to post-transplant side. The only way you could successfully do a transplant because of graft-versus-host disease was to use closely matched donors. And it was, you probably heard, um, um, difficult to find a close match for many patients, particularly patients of uh, certain racial and ethnic groups like African-Americans and Hispanics for lots of reasons. Post-transplant SI now allows us to do mismatched transplants using half-matched family members and half-matched unrelated donors so that now everybody who needs a bone marrow transplant can have it. Wow, that's wonderful. And um, that work was started by George and Al Owens um, again in the 1960s here at Hopkins in mm -hmm. animals. And it took over 50 years. I've written a few thought pieces about this, about the history of, uh, of how it got developed and why it took so long to become standard of care, but it is now standard of care. I'm curious about your own interest in bone marrow transplantation, sort of where that began, and then um, you know what it was like to work with George in those early years. Yeah, so um, I'm not sure we ever know how we get into something. Uh, often it just seems to happen. I can tell you that it was probably generated by two things. One is my dad was diagnosed with chronic myeloid leukemia, or CML. Mm -hmm. um, in 1970, uh, when I was in college, and oh, I'm sorry, bone marrow trans. Well, today CML is a little bit like hypertension, and mm -hmm. uh, very few people die of it because of the advances that have happened, uh, including bone marrow transplant. Uh, but um, when I was really getting into medicine, bone marrow transplant was becoming the treatment of choice for CML and the only thing that actually could cure it. Right. Um, and uh, number two was an article Don Thomas wrote in 1975 when I was in medical school and it was in the New England Journal. And it was sort of a summary of this newly developing field of bone marrow transplant. So when I went looking for my fellowship, um, I wanted to go to a place that did bone marrow transplant. And there weren't a lot at the time. Uh, and it was either basically you went to Sloan Kettering, University of Minnesota, Seattle, UCLA, or Johns Hopkins. Right. Um, and um, I'm a Northeast boy from Pennsylvania. So Johns Hopkins made a lot of sense. For sure. And George was... Um, 
quite uh, interesting individual. Um, my, uh, they had a dinner for the new fellows early, right before we started. And uh, George was sitting at one of the tables and basically held court. And he was very engaging. Uh, many people thought he was crazy. Um, <laughs> and in many ways he was, but he was also very insightful. And uh, I would say that um, much of what we're currently doing in bone marrow transplant internationally was developed by George. Um, I love how you said that many people thought that he was crazy. Um, could you elaborate a little bit more on that or, you know, just what it was like to sort of talk to him at one of these dinners? Yeah, I mean, he he was, uh, he chain smoked. Uh, he would talk between uh, cigarettes and he was unbelievably committed to this emerging field of transplant. And mm -hmm. he would just talk about, you know, treating patients with doses of radiation and chemotherapy that would kill them if they didn't have this transplant. And most people knew about graft-versus-host disease by this time and scared people. Um, and uh, he was just so committed and sure that this was gonna work. Yeah. Um, I, I can tell you uh, one other story about him. He had quite a chip on his shoulder regarding Seattle and Donnell Thomas. Uh, they were the industrial revolution of bone marrow transplant. I mean, they, they were doing hundreds of bone marrow transplants um, by the 90s when Hopkins was doing 150. Uh, they were doing 700 or 800. Most people in the field who trained internationally went to Seattle to learn about it. Um, uh, but I think George felt that he was doing a lot of the innovations that was moving mm -hmm. the field, like he, in fact, did the first um, conditioned matched sibling allogeneic transplant. Mm -hmm. uh, he developed cyclophosphamide that everybody was using. His group mm -hmm. developed usulfan that everybody was using. Mm -hmm. um, and I, you know, when the Nobel Prize came out, he, he actually intimated this to me that he was disappointed because he thought he should share that prize with Donnell Thomas. Mm -hmm. And several people in the field have told me that that was their feeling through the years uh, because of his impact that persists to this day. And yeah. um, again, I'm biased, as I said, but I think post-transplant side has been the major advance uh, in this millennium in transplant. It started by he and Allowens in the 1960s. Yeah. I'm curious, just on a sort of personal level, like you mentioned the chip on his shoulder. Did were he and Don Thomas, were they sort of, you know, combative in, <laughs> as things no, went on? No, I think, or... I, I, well, you know, it, there's sort of a joke that says, um, if you get 10 bone marrow transplanters in the room uh, and talk about how to treat a patient, you'll get 10 different um, ideas of how to move forward. Um, they were both trying to develop an area um, that they were both were sure was going to work. Uh, I think George and Don had the 
utmost respect for one another. Absolutely. Um, there was not a lot of collaboration um, in those days because everybody was doing their own thing. And I'm not sure that would have been a good thing mm -hmm. then because it allowed people to innovate, develop different approaches and figure out the one that worked the best. Um, we've become much more collaborative in the field uh, over the last 20 years, um, basically through the development of a NIH funded grant called the Bone Marrow Transplant um, Clinical uh, Transplant Network. Um, and, you know, I think we're, as a group, um, figuring out which of these approaches uh, work the best. Um, but back then they were, I, I would guess, a term would be friendly rivals. How about that? Got it. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, you know, and and we talked about this earlier too, but I'd love to just hear about the connection that George had with his patients. And um, if we could talk about those photos he had on his walls. And um, I think in the obituary I read too, he attended the wedding of one of his patients. I think he probably attended the wedding of multiple of his patients. Um, so... Again, he would, bone marrow transplant's a little bit different than many other cancer treatments because the patients remain at the transplant center for several months, back then maybe even longer. Um, and although you may have a patient for many years as an oncologist, you don't see them every day. Uh, bone marrow transplant doctors see their patients every day. So in many ways, um, the relationships they develop are incredibly uh, close. You get to know them very well. You get to know their families. And um, I, I think George, more than or as much as many of us, um, really uh, wanted to become very close to their patients. And I think they appreciated it. And so he had, you know, his wall of pictures behind him. Um, he kept a little chart on all the pictures, on all the patients that went through transplant that he would fill in by hand. I actually still have it right here. Oh um, my God, that's every amazing. Patient that he did is listed in this now falling apart uh, book. How many, how many people are in there? Um, so he retired in 1994. And he put a number on every one of his patients. So the last number that he has is 1,936. So over 1,000 people. And he would, so what would he include in this chart? Um, their age, their disease, their donor information, um, where they lived, uh, how they were treated, uh, what their outcome was. Um, and he, he did it by hand himself. Uh, he had no, you know, data manager or research associate who did this for him. He kept this on his desk and filled it in for each of these patients. But I have a lot of his uh, memorabilia in my office mm. that um, lamp is <laughs> on his desk that you can't see here. And oh, that's great! A hot picture of the dome that was his um, <laughs> his microscope, uh, his original bone marrow transplant harvest needles, uh, but I don't have that picture, uh, but I'm sure it's somewhere. 
And so the other aspect of George that, that I think is incredibly important, mm-hmm. um, in addition to his innovation, research, his love of patients, um, mm-hmm. nursing. I mean, he was probably the biggest proponent of nursing in the early days and social work. He's the one who got social work on every one of our uh, oncology floors. But one of the things I remember him most for um, is pushing this um, concept of translational research. Uh, I'm sure you're aware of the term. Um, it, It actually stands for taking what we learn in the laboratory and moving it to the clinic. And when I started here at Hopkins, uh, nobody was using that term. It's become sort of um, commonplace uh, these days. Uh, But back then you were sort of pushed to either work in the clinic with patients or work in the lab with research. And George said, the only way we're gonna move science forward is to merge those things. And the best way to do it is to have people who worked both in the lab and the clinic. So bone marrow transplant and blood cancer research here at Hopkins was all built on people who were physician scientists who had a foot in the lab and a foot in the clinic. He used to call this process engineering because he was an MIT graduate. Um, I never heard him use the term translational research, but I would use it after he would uh, talk about it. And um, he's the one that convinced me to work both in the lab um, and in mice and um, uh, you know petri dishes, uh, as well as uh, work in um, the clinic to help translate those findings. And Uh, I've written a few thought pieces, histories about the development of post-transplant sci now that it's become a standard of care. And I think it's the prime example of um, translational team science, taking what we learned in the lab and moving it to the clinic by an entire team of hundreds of people because no one aspect of this could have been done by one person. And it's happened over the last half of a century, more than half of a century now. Great. Well, thank you so much for making that point. Um, I'm, I'm really glad we got to touch on translational research. Um, you know, I, I think just sort of wrapping up this conversation, is there anything else you think that we should know or you know, really highlight to our readers just about George and his contributions to bone marrow transplantation? Well, I mean, I, I, you know, I just think listing some of the firsts, um, nobody would argue that he did the first studies with cyclophosphamide. Nobody would argue he did the first studies with eusulfan. Um, he developed these two drugs, which are now the, some of the major drugs, if not the major two drugs used in the field. He did the first non-myeloblative transplants. So I was at a um, meeting, having dinner with a group of people Mm-hmm. 25 years ago. So all the original transplants were called myeloblative. He used high doses of chemotherapy that were aimed at the leukemia or the lymphoma. 
And the transplant was thought to be a rescue for these high doses of, of therapy, which also killed normal blood cells because they were dividing. Mm -hmm. We later learned that the major anti-tumor effect of an allogeneic transplant is not the drugs beforehand. It's actually the new immune system of the donor. It's the sort of the first immunotherapy. Uh, and um, we've learned a lot about immunotherapy, which is now the hottest topic in cancer from bone marrow transplant. Mm -hmm. um, they were arguing uh, back then because non-myeloblative transplants were being developed. They were much easier to do. They were cheaper. You could do them in an older, less fit patients. Who did the first allogeneic transplant? And people talked about Israel. Other people talked about uh, MD Anderson. And I just stood up and said, George Santos did the first ones uh, <laughs> with high-dose cytoxan. And everybody said, yeah, you're right. Uh, but he didn't know he was doing a non-myeloblative so he did the first non-myeloblative transplants. I think he was the first use of cyclosporin, which is one of our major graft-versus-host disease mm -hmm. um, drugs. Um, and you know, I think his legacy is now post-transplant cyclophosphamide. Thank you for listening to the Cancer History Project podcast, podcasts of oral histories and interviews with the people who have shaped oncology as we know it. Our archives are available online for free at cancerhistoryproject.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at cancerhistproj. The Cancer History Project is a collaborative historical resource operated by The Cancer Letter. This is an ongoing project and would not be possible without the input and materials provided by our editorial board, our contributors, and the support of our sponsors, including Cedar sinai Roswell Park Comprehensive Cancer Center, MD Anderson Cancer Center, and many others. View a full list of our sponsors at cancerhistoryproject.com sponsors. If your institution would like to participate in the Cancer History Project, email us at admin at cancerhistoryproject.com.